Section 59 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Winterburn. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. Mammals. By Charles Lewis Cornish, Editor. Chapter 21. The Sloths, Anteaters, and Armadillos. By W. P. Pycraft. ALS. FZS. The very remarkable assemblage of animals we are now about to consider includes many diverse forms, bracketed together to constitute one great group. And this on account of the peculiarities of the structure and distribution of the teeth, which are never present in the front of the jaw, and may be absent altogether. Of the five groups recognized, three occur in the new and two in the old world. All have undergone very considerable modification of form and structure, and in every case this modification has tended to render them more perfectly adapted to an arboreal or terrestrial existence. Flying or aquatic types are wanting. Whilst one great group, the sloths, is entirely vegetarian, the others feed either on flesh or insects. The Sloths In the matter of personal appearance, nature has not been kind to the sloth, though it is certainly true that there are many uglier animals, not including those such as some of the monkey tribe and certain of the swine, which are positively hideous. The mode of life of the sloth is certainly remarkable for almost its whole existence is passed among the highest trees of the densest South American forests, and passed, too, in a perfectly topsy-turvy manner, inasmuch as it moves from bough to bough with its legs up in the air and its back towards the ground. It walks and sleeps suspended beneath the boughs instead of balanced above them, securely holding itself by means of powerful hooked claws on the fore and hind feet. This method of locomotion, so remarkable in a mammal, coupled with the deliberate fashion in which it moves, and the air of sadness expressed in its quaint physiognomy, large-eyed, snub-nosed, and earless, on which there seems to dwell an ever-present air of resignation, led the great Buffon to believe that the sloth was a creature afflicted of God for some hidden reason man could not fathom. His sympathy was as certainly wasted as his hasty conclusion was unjustified. There can be no doubt but that the life led by the sloth is at least as blissful as that of its more lively neighbors, the spider monkeys, for instance. Walking beneath the boughs comes as natural to the sloth as walking on the ceiling to the fly. The sloth sleeps, as we have already remarked, suspended from a bough, during this time the feet are drawn close together, and the head raised up and placed between the forelegs, as in the cobago, which we depicted asleep on page 170, as our readers will remember. In the sleeping position the sloth bears a striking resemblance to the stump of a lichen-covered bough, just as the cobago resembles a fruit. Thus is protection from enemies gained. The resemblance to lichen is further aided by the fact that the long, coarse hair with which the sloth is clothed becomes encrusted with a peculiar green alga, a lowly form of vegetable growth, 
which lodges in certain grooves or flutings peculiar to the hair of this animal. Such a method of protection is unique amongst the mammalia. As the sloths sleep by day and feed by night, the usefulness of such a method of concealment is beyond question. The strange form of locomotion of the sloths renders separate fingers and toes unnecessary, and so the fingers and toes have come to be enclosed in a common fold of skin, extending down to the base of the claws. The sloths stand out in strong contrast to the volatile spider monkeys with whom they share the forest. These have added a fifth limb in the shape of a prehensile tail by which they may suspend themselves at will. The sloths, on the contrary, have no tail. They move deliberately and do not require it. The monkeys move by prodigious leaps, taken not seldom by gathering impetus by swinging on their tails. The great naturalist Bates writes of the sloth, It is a strange sight to watch this uncouth creature, fit production of these silent shades, lazily moving from branch to branch. Every movement betrays, not indolence exactly, but extreme caution. He never loses his hold from one branch without first securing himself to the next. After watching the animal for about half an hour, I gave him a charge of shot. He fell with a terrific crash, but caught a bow in his descent with his powerful claws and remained suspended. Our Indian lad tried to climb the tree, but was driven back by swarms of stinging ants. The poor little fellow slid down in a sad predicament and plunged headlong into the brook to free himself. On another occasion, the same writer tells us he saw a sloth swimming across a river at a place where it was three hundred yards broad. I believe it is not generally known that this animal takes to the water. Our men caught the beast, cooked, and ate him. In past ages, gigantic ground sloths roamed over South America. The largest of these, the Megatherium, rivaled the elephant in size. Descendants of these giants appear to have lingered on till comparatively recent times, as witnessed the wonderful discovery by Moreno, made during last year, 1900, in a cave in Patagonia. This was nothing less than a skull and a large piece of the hide of one of these monsters in a wonderful state of preservation, showing indeed undoubted traces of blood and sinew. That the hide was removed by human hands there can be no doubt, for it was rolled up and turned inside out. Immediately after this discovery was announced, an expedition was dispatched from England to hunt, not so much for more remains, but for the animal itself. Time will show whether these efforts will prove successful. The Anteaters Unlike as the anteaters are to the sloths, they are nevertheless very closely related thereto. This unlikeness at the present day is so great that, were it not for missing links in the shape of fossils, we should probably never have discovered the relationship. The head of the typical anteaters has been drawn out into a long tubular muzzle, at the end of which is a tiny mouth just big enough to permit the exit of a long worm-like tongue covered with a sticky saliva. This tongue is thrust out with great rapidity amongst the hosts of ants and termites and their larvae on which they prey. These victims are captured by breaking open their nests. 
At once all the active inhabitants swarm up to the breach and are instantaneously swept away by the remorseless tongue. The jaws of the anteaters are entirely toothless, and the eyes and ears are very small. The largest species of anteater is about four feet long. It lives entirely upon the ground. Generally speaking, it is a harmless creature, but at times, when cornered, it will fight furiously, sitting up on its hind legs and hugging its foe in its powerful arms. Bates, the traveler naturalist, relates an instance in which a dog used in hunting the great anteater was caught in its grip and killed. The tail of this large species is covered with very long hair, forming an immense brush. The claw on the third toe of each forelimb is of great size and used for breaking open ants and other insects' nests. But besides the great ground anteater, there are some tree-haunting species. These have a shorter muzzle and short hair on the tail, which is used, as with the spider monkeys, as a fifth limb. Curled round the bough of a tree, its owner is free to swing himself out onto another branch. The smallest of the tree-dwelling species is not larger than a rat, and is a native of the hottest parts of the forests of South and Central America. The muzzle in this species is quite short, not long and tubular as in the larger species. It is a very rare animal, or is at least very seldom seen, a fact perhaps due to its small size. It is known as the two-toed anteater, only the second and third fingers of the forefeet bearing claws. Von Sack, in his Narrative of a Voyage to Suriname, tells us that the natives of Suriname call this little animal kissing hand, as the inhabitants pretend that it will never eat, at least when caught, but that it only licks its paws in the same manner as the bear, that all trials to make it eat have proved in vain, and that it soon dies in confinement. When I got the first, I sent to the forest for a nest of ants, and during the interim I put into its cage some eggs, honey, milk, and meat, but it refused to touch any of them. At last the ant's nest arrived, but the animal did not pay the slightest attention to it either. By the shape of its forepaws, which resemble nippers, I thought that this little creature might perhaps live on the nymphae of wasps, etc. I therefore brought it a wasp's nest, and then it pulled out with its nippers the nymphae from the nest, and began to eat them with the greatest eagerness, sitting in the posture of a squirrel. I showed this phenomenon to many of the inhabitants, who all assured me that it was the first time they had ever known that species of animal take any nourishment. End of section 59. Recording by Stephen Winterburn.